Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth. This is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's right. This is Melissa Canchola with Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening, and we're going to get started with the lesson. It is Dr. Vody Valcom, and this one is on the distinctives of the Old and New Covenants here on Trippy Toll Radio. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. As we come rapidly to the end of the second section of Exodus, this, this second movement, if you will, in Exodus. Uh, the first movement was Exodus 1 through 12. And in Exodus 1 through 12, we went on a journey from the people's prayer and desire for deliverance all the way to the Passover and to the death angel coming and God delivering his people through wrath. And then after that, we took a break and looked at the Lord's Supper and implications for how we as followers of Christ um, apply the truths that we find in that first movement of the text. Now in this second movement of the text, uh, we're looking at verses 13, chapters 13 through 19, and, and we're watching the people of Israel become just that, the people of Israel. And we see the trials and tribulations in the desert, and we see the continued wrestling with unbelief. Coming now to a close of this section, and as we close this section, the people are being prepared to enter into a covenant with God, to enter into the Mosaic Covenant. By far, the most famous of all of the Old Testament covenants. This, this covenant with Moses. And as they prepare for this covenant, here in chapter 19, Moses is going to prepare them to meet with God. And it is going to be a meeting unlike any other. And as they prepare to meet with God, they have to consecrate themselves. And it is to this that we turn our attention in chapter 19, beginning at verse 9. Remember, God is about to come down on the mountain and deliver to them the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He's going to deliver this, this covenantal document, if you will. And we are just prior to that. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, 
take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. And just as a footnote here, I know we have a lot of young people here, and I know that if the young people here are anything like the young people in my house, when you read that verse, the young people in my house kind of look up and go, they had guns? No, that would have been with, with arrows. So just for the young people to put your minds at ease so you can continue to listen to me and not be stuck right there for the rest of the morning, okay? Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds, a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, the danger in today's text lies in the low-hanging fruit. It would be easy to read this text and its emphasis on consecration prior to coming into God's presence and run full speed to the obvious application to the way many Americans come to church, from board shorts and flip-flops to blue jeans and graphic tees. One could have a field day pointing a righteous finger of indignation, calling people to repent. However, doing so would miss the mark on several fronts. First, it would ignore the ample evidence in both the Old and New Testament that makes it clear that God is after much more than just the way we dress. Second, it would fall into the trap of viewing righteousness as an outward reality, as if somehow there is something that you can put on yourself that will make you righteous, that there is something that you can possess and place on your person that would make you righteous. This would not only fall into a trap, but it would also put us in the category of other religions that basically identify their holy people by something special that they wear. Thirdly, it would fail to grasp and communicate the significance of the continuity and discontinuity between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant and what those things teach us about true holiness. And finally, if we did that, there would be no good news. None whatsoever. You see, we could do that without the gospel. We could do that, and there would be no need for Christ. We could do that, and basically what we would communicate is Jesus didn't need to come and die because all you have to do to be righteous is just put on the right clothes. 
just wear the right thing outwardly, and you have conquered righteousness. That is not good news. I believe the way we dress when we come to church matters. Not because I believe there's a particular type or quality of clothing that makes us acceptable to God, but because of the connection between what we put on and what we believe. Walking into church looking like a streetwalker, surfer, or a homeless person, not necessarily sinful, if you indeed are a streetwalker, surfer, a homeless person. But the issue is that we have been commanded to approach the Lord robed in righteousness. And righteousness is not an outward garment. Amen? So if those things are true, then how do we look at this text and God obviously calling Israel to consecrate themselves, and obviously calling them to consecrate themselves specifically in an outward sense, he doesn't tell them, get your heart right. He tells them, wash your clothes, and then don't go near a woman. So obviously, there's a message here of something outward. So if there is this message of something outward and of consecrating ourselves and preparing ourselves has something to do with this message of outwardness, how do we then apply that to who we are today in the new covenant and not under the Mosaic covenant without just going straight to that issue of clothing? But we do it by understanding the continuity and the discontinuity between the Mosaic Covenant, and the New Covenant. And if you look at these things in light of that continuity and discontinuity, there are truths here that apply to us all. The other thing we have to understand is that what we are looking at, if you look through the arc of redemptive history, is we are looking at the church in infancy, Redemptive history is just beginning. We've just come out of Genesis, and we're just now in Exodus. God is revealing himself to his people, and he is doing so progressively. Think about it in terms of the way we raise our children. There are truths that we desire to communicate to our children that are deep theological truths. But when our children are small, before we can get to the deep theological truth, we have to sometimes deal with these outward issues in hopes of later making the connection between that outward issue and the inward one. And as they grow in their maturity and their understanding, we can be clearer and clearer about the connection between these things. But oftentimes, we just begin with the most simple. And if you understand that this is part of redemptive history unfolding, you understand that God is here dealing with his people in infancy. First, let's look at the continuity between the Mosaic and the New Covenant as it relates to this issue of consecration. 
the first thing that we see here in terms of continuity, and when I say continuity, I mean the things that are the same, things that haven't changed between then and now. And later we'll look at the things that have changed between then and now and their significance in the way that we apply this truth. First of all, the sanctity and centrality of the word has not changed between then and now. In verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. There's two purposes in God coming in the thick cloud. One, so that the people can hear the word of God. And two, so that the people can know that Moses is God's prophet and can trust Moses as God's prophet. The whole idea here is that the people of God would have a relationship with God based on the word of God. This was true then, and this is true now. The people of God have a relationship with God based on the word of God. The word of God is the foundation of our relationship with God. It is the fount from which flows God's truth that changes our lives. It is the way we know who God is. And so there are two things here. First, the source of the revelation, God himself. God is revealing his presence prior to revealing his law. God is revealing to the people of Israel that he is the source of the revelation. Because if God is not the source of the revelation, then the revelation is not binding. If Moses comes with a law and the law didn't come from God, it is not binding on the people. The only thing that can bind the conscience of God's people is the word of God. Amen? By the way, this is one of the hallmarks of Baptist theology. The liberty of conscience that no one can bind the conscience of a believer, save God himself and his word. No one can say to a believer, taste not, touch not, where God has not given such instructions. No one can bind the conscience of a believer and force a believer to adhere to rules and regulations that are anything other than the rules and regulations of God. No one can do this in a theological sense. Again, we're not talking about whether or not people can establish speed limits. Amen? So don't run out of here saying, oh, they're trying to bind my conscience. Because God has made it very clear how you are to show respect for things like that. But it's the word of God that makes that clear. When I talk about our conscience being bound, I'm talking about people who make rules for how it is that you approach God, rules for how it is that you know God, rules for how it is that you obey and serve God rightly. That's what I mean by binding the conscience. Moses did not have the right to do that, even though God had singled him out as his prophet. Moses did not have the right to choose on his own what things he would communicate to the people in terms of what is righteous and what is not. Moses did not have that right, and if he had exercised that right, he would have been in sin. And anyone who allowed their conscience to be bound by Moses and not by the word of God would be in sin. 
does this look like? We, we see it all around us, do we not? We see the binding of consciences, and I'm not just talking about outside of people who call them Christ, themselves Christian. I mean within people who call themselves Christian. Don't we see people whose consciences are bound, people who, for example, won't eat meat on Fridays? Amen. I went to high school in San Antonio to largely Roman Catholic era area, and I remember being in high school in San Antonio, and they wouldn't serve meat in the cafeteria on Fridays. What's that about? That's the first time I learned that there were people who, because of their brand of Christianity believed that it was more pious for them not to eat meat on Fridays. That, my friends, is binding the conscience. Amen, somebody. When there are rules for righteousness that come from someone or somewhere other than the scriptures, the conscience has been bound. Not only is God revealing himself to be the source of revelation, but he's revealing Moses, his prophet, as the steward of the revelation. Look at what the text says. That the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Moses has been communicating to the people as God's spokesman. And the people have doubted Moses again and again and again. God says there are a couple of things that I desire to accomplish by coming down on the mountain in the thick cloud. One, I want the people to hear from me. I want them to know that what they're dealing with is the word of God. And two, I want the people to know that I have chosen you as my prophet so that as they listen to you, they are listening to me. John Calvin commenting on this text writes, for if the mightiest prophets... Moses obtained, or the mightiest of prophets, rather, Moses obtained credit in the church on no other grounds than because he bore the commands of God and only taught what he had heard. How foolish and impudent will it be in teachers who sink down far beneath him to endeavor to attain a higher point. In fine, this passage shows that we must believe in God alone, but that at the same time we must listen to the prophets who spoke out of his mouth. Besides this, it appears that God did not wish to obtain credit for his servant Moses during a short period of time, but that posterity should pay him the same reverence even after his death. In other words, we listen to Moses just like they listened to Moses because God made it clear that Moses was proclaiming the word of God. So Moses was being validated as God's spokesman. The Decalogue was being validated as God's law. And the Bible was being validated as God's word. This is why we adhere to the scriptures. This is why we believe what we have in the Bible, because God has validated the Bible. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we read it earlier. 
long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So there is continuity between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant in that God's word is final. That our obedience is to God and his word. There is also continuity in our understanding of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. This was communicated in our text, and it's still true today. Look at 10 to 12, second part of 9 to 12. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, don't you just love that? As, as, though, as though he's informing God of something. Moses, I'm coming down. I'll meet with the people. Okay, you should probably know some of the things they've been saying. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Several things here that point out the distance between God and the people in terms of his holiness, being set apart, being other. First, their need for washing. Wash your clothes. I'm getting ready to visit you in a significant way. And you need to wash your clothes. The text doesn't say how they were to wash their clothes. But what a powerful statement it would be if after just coming off of instances a couple of chapters earlier where they come into a place where there's no water. And God gives them water after they're grumbling and complaining. Because if there's anything you can't do without in the desert, it's water. And now a couple of chapters later, God says, I'm going to visit you, consecrate yourselves, wash your clothes. It would be amazing if that included using the precious resource of water to wash those clothes. Because in the desert, when water is scarce, you don't use it to wash your clothes. Amen, somebody. If you're in the desert and water is scarce, you drink it. Period. Because if you don't drink it, you die. God says to wash your clothes. In other words, Moses, the people need to know that what is about to happen is significant. It's out of the ordinary. It's not normal. This is something different than they've ever experienced before. My presence is about to descend upon these people. Tell them to get ready. What does that say? What it says is you're not ready in and of yourself to meet with God. Amen? Secondly, the unapproachable mountain makes it clear that there is a distance between God and his holiness and man and his sinfulness. First of all, don't come dirty. Secondly, don't come close. I'll make sure 
that the cloud can be seen and heard, you make sure that you don't get too close. And thirdly, the ominous cloud. God comes in this cloud. They've experienced this cloud before. This cloud has protected them. This cloud has been a barrier between them and their adversaries. And now God comes down, he says, in a thick cloud. But that's just, that's, just, that's just Old Testament stuff. That's just Mosaic Covenant stuff, right? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 to 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light when no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Christ dwells in unapproachable light. God has always dwelled in unapproachable light. And this light is the radiance of God's glory and his holiness and his righteousness. And you and I cannot comprehend that. It was true then, and it's true now. God is still holy, saints. God is still righteous. And he still dwells in unapproachable light. Thirdly, we see continuity in the wrath of God against sin. The next verse, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. You don't get simpler than that. Don't come close to the mountain. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. In fact, not only do you not touch the mountain, you don't touch someone who touched the mountain. You don't even get to have third-person contact with God. If someone touches the mountain, they die. And the way that they die must include or must not include you touching them. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. God's wrath against sin. And notice that God's wrath against sin is not about deeds. It's about being. This is extremely important. You see, God's wrath against sin, we, we think we're safe from God's wrath. And you talk to people who are outside of relationship with Christ, and oftentimes those people will talk to you about things that they haven't done. I'm okay because I haven't done A, B, C, or X, Y, Z. God's wrath against sin has to do with his complete and utter holiness and righteousness 
and the fact that this holiness and righteousness by definition consumes and destroys that which is not holy and that which is not righteous. Your problem is not what you've done. Your problem is who you are. You are not holy. You are not righteous. You were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And you have no business in the presence of God who dwells in unapproachable light. And your mere nearness to that is grounds for your execution. Until you get that, you don't get holiness. You don't get righteousness. You don't understand that the difference between you and God is an ontological difference. It is a difference of being. This was true then, and this is true now. So whichever side of the coin we find ourselves on, these things have not changed. But, but what has changed? When we understand what has changed, now we begin to see how this applies to us. There is discontinuity between the Mosaic and the New Covenant as well. First, in the New Covenant, God himself is our mediator. In the Mosaic Covenant, Moses is the mediator. A mere man is the mediator. But in the New Covenant, we have a better covenant and a better mediator. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been uh, faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Hebrews 3.3. 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Christ is our mediator. God himself is our mediator. This is discontinuity between the covenants. We do have a man that stands between us and God's unapproachable light, but the man that stands between us and God's unapproachable light is the God-man. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is Christ Jesus himself who took on flesh, who wrapped that righteousness and holiness in flesh so that he could reconcile us to God in his unapproachable light. In the New Covenant, our cleansing is not merely external. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Yeah, there's a washing. But it's not the same. This is a washing from the inside out. This is not just 
clean up your garments on the outside and observe a few rules before you come into the presence of Almighty God. This is be changed from the inside out. Not so that you can come before the presence of God, but so that you can be indwelled by the very presence of God who dwells in unapproachable light. Oh, this is superior, friends. This is greater. Beyond that, we find that God was never satisfied with mere outward washing. Turn to the right and look at the book of Isaiah. You'll find something very interesting. Remember we talked about progressive revelation, about God revealing himself to his people progressively over history and through time. And here, what we've got so far is clean your garments before you come in the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 1, go down to verse number 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. By the way, Sodom and Gomorrah, toast. They're gone. He's not writing to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's writing to Israel, and he's referring to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. He's making a point here. Verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure inequity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Well, what's wrong? What do you need to do? Next verse. Wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like We're not even at the new covenant yet And already God is communicating to his people Outward washing is not enough This is what the Pharisees didn't understand Matthew 23, 25 and 26 Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites For you clean the outside of the cup And the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Jesus didn't say the outside doesn't matter. He said the inside has priority. And that if you clean the inside, the outside becomes clean. Can a streetwalker walk into a church looking like a streetwalker? Yes, she can. But if God, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
redeems her and transforms her, will she still continue to walk into church looking like a streetwalker? You better believe she won't. She won't. Because what she will be communicating is a reality that is no longer consistent with that which she communicated before. We see washing connected with our very regeneration. In Titus 3, 4 to 7, we have the washing of regeneration. We have washing connected with our justification. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that famous passage, and such were some of you, but you were washed. Washing, of course, is also equated with our sanctification. Husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So in our justification, in our sanctification, in our regeneration, we see this idea of washing. We are washed and we are made clean. And it is because of this washing that we are consecrated and made ready to come before the presence of God and to even be indwelt by the presence of God. Thirdly, in the New Covenant, God comes to us, not the mountain. It's amazing that in the Mosaic Covenant here, God says, I'm going to come to the mountain. And the people are going to see me come to the mountain, but they can't come too close. In the New Covenant, God's dwelling place is with men. Again, 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Again, the connection between the inward and the outward. But it begins on the inside, not on the outside. Finally, in the New Covenant, another has taken our penalty. You and I are not worthy to approach God who dwells in unapproachable light. And coming as close to God as you and I have come requires death. And that's exactly what was paid on our behalf so that we might approach God, so that we might know God, and so that God might indwell us. Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us back to God. All we like sheep had gone astray. Each of us had turned to his own way. But God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It is because of the death of Christ that you and I have the privilege of approaching this holy and righteous God. It is because of that that we have the privilege of coming boldly before the throne of grace instead of cowering in fear like Israel of old who didn't want to get too close lest they be put to death. You and I come boldly and we cry out, Abba, Father. And we are indwelt by God himself. Do you understand this? Can you comprehend it? 
This is why it is so wrong for us to look at a text like this and come away with, we need to do a better job of getting ready outwardly to come to church. Lord, help us. That's why we've missed the boat, if that's the way we approach things like this. And unfortunately, this is often the way we approach things like this. But when you understand this reality, you don't come to a place where you say, ah, the outside doesn't matter. No, we've seen through several texts in the New Testament that the outside does matter. And when the inside is cleaned up, it manifests itself on the outside. Not so that we can somehow come to a place where we believe we've made ourselves ready and righteous by what we've done. But we come to a place where we understand that Christ has made us ready and righteous by what he has done. And we enter as children of the king. When we come, there is still consecration. But what this consecration looks like is being reminded of the sin that is in our lives. Being reminded that Christ has purchased our ransom and has forgiven us. Being reminded of the gratitude that we owe to him because he has made us right with God and given us the privilege of approaching God. Coming before God in an attitude of humility because we do not approach God who dwells in unapproachable light because of our own merit, but because of the alien righteousness that has been imputed to us by Christ himself having earned this right through his death on the cross. When we understand that, we can no longer be flippant about approaching God. When we were in Israel, one of the places that I found fascinating, two places that I found fascinating, were, of course, the Temple Mount, but also Qumran, where we found the Qumran scrolls. There at the Temple Mount, outside the temple, outside the steps, there are these pools, these pools everywhere. I used to wonder how they baptized thousands of people in a day. These pools are called mikvahs, and they are. You know, like small swimming pools with stairs going down and then coming out. And before coming into the temple, the people of God would come and disrobe and go down into these mikvahs and immerse themselves in the water and then come back out and put on new clothes and go in. The group at Qumran was a group called the Essenes, and the Essenes had these massive libraries and scrolls that were incredibly important to them. But before they would touch any of these scrolls, they had mikvahs all around where they would immerse themselves, become clean before they would come out and handle the Word of God. 
And it was amazing to contemplate the number of times that these individuals would go into this water and out of this water and into this water and out of this water before they would eat, before they would do this, before they would do that. This baptism of sorts that they would experience. All of this outward washing, being reminded constantly that I am filthy, that I am not worthy. Interestingly enough, we still, when we come to faith in Christ, experience that same washing where we go down into the waters of baptism and come out of them. And the picture that we are painting is a picture of Christ being buried in his death and then coming out of the grave in his resurrection to walk in newness of life. And listen, just like Christ does not have to be buried again, you and I don't have to be baptized again to come before the presence of God. Because we are baptized into Christ. We are immersed into Christ. And because of that, his righteousness is our righteousness. His holiness, our holiness. It is not something that we earn. It is something that has been freely given. Listen to me. If you are here today and you are trying to be good enough for God outwardly, Let me tell you two things. Number one, you can't get there from here. It won't work. It'll never happen. You can't do it. And number two, you don't have to. Christ has accomplished that on behalf of all of those who will come to him in repentance and faith. Stop. Striving, stop seeking that which is already found in Christ. Cease your efforts at self-righteousness. Look to the cross and right now recognize that Christ has accomplished that which you never could. And right now recognize that what is required is for you to come to him in repentance and faith and turn from your sin and turn to Christ so that he might wash you, so that he might make you whole. So that he might justify you and sanctify you. And that God, by the power and presence of his Holy Spirit, God who dwells in unapproachable light might indwell you and consecrate you fully. What a tragedy it would be to walk away from a text like this saying to ourselves, we need to do a better job of cleaning up the outside of the cup. What a tragedy it would be to miss what we've learned through progressive revelation as God has made this picture 
clearer and clearer and clearer until through the person and work of Christ we see fully what it means to be consecrated in the presence of the one true and living God. Oh, I would ask you to be consecrated today. I would ask you to be clean today, but not because of what you do to the outside, but because of what Christ does to the inside when you come to him in repentance and faith, pleading for and finding his forgiveness, and as a result, walking in his righteousness. Would you pray with me? God, our Heavenly Father, we bow before you, acknowledging your holiness and your righteousness, acknowledging your majesty, and acknowledging our sinfulness and our desperate need for forgiveness. And as we acknowledge these things, we also come in humble thanksgiving for Christ, who has become our righteousness for all of those who have placed their faith in him, thanking you for the consecration that is ours because we are found in Christ. Grant by your grace that we might walk in this truth. Father, I pray for the one under the sound of my voice who has not yet come to faith in Christ. Grant by your grace that they might turn from sin and flee to Christ, being found in him and in him alone. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming before you consecrated. We thank you for the privilege of coming before you clean. We thank you for the privilege of coming before you clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself, Grant by your grace that this might impact every aspect of who we are from the inside out. We pray these things. In Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. Once again, that was Distinctives of the Old and New Covenants by Dr. Valdi Buckham. And next, what we got for you, this is, he came back 10 years later to apologize to Ray Comfort. This is from Living Waters YouTube page. So we've met before. We have met before. When? Uh, 10 plus years ago. I was walking down the pier with one of my friends and you, you, you came up to us and I wasn't a believer at the time. That's kind of the only understanding that I had is God is love and means I can do whatever I want. I can, I just say God is love and I'm good to go. And then you came and, and confronted me. You, you walked me through the law and it, it really hit me. Actually, I was really upset. I didn't stay for the whole interview. In fact, you walked off. I walked off. I got so upset. I got, I, I remember feeling like, I was like, I want to just grab this man's camera and throw it in the, in the water right now. You had asked me if I, about lying. And I said, yeah, you call him a liar. So what are you a liar? And I remember being upset and I was like, I'm going to say something to this guy. I was like, I'm going to do something. I asked if I was a thief and I was like, nope, never stolen anything. You had asked if I had ever pirated music before. 
And I was like, oh, I have. So and he said, what does that make you? I said, a pirate. <laughs> and, our, and you asked um, if... Uh, Taking God's name in vain. You did, yeah. Looked was last. Uh-huh. That's about the point I left. I, I couldn't take the heat. We didn't even get to the gospel. I just didn't want anything to do with it. I felt so convicted, so upset. And I was like, who is this man that's pointing sin out to me? You can't do that. You can't judge. So my, my friend's a, a, a pastor. He would tell me, you're not allowed to judge me. And actually, for years, that sat with me. I, I, I um, started going to my friend's church, and I remember just reading my Bible fervently so that one day I would see you again <laughs> and say, I'll show you. You know, you can't tell me about this stuff. I actually met my wife uh, at that time, and uh, it's funny. She lived in Pennsylvania. <laughs> there she is. She was in school at the time, and she said, Chad, I saw this really cool video there. It's showing me at my college, at my university. Um, it's this guy on the pier. He talks to people uh, about Jesus on the pier. I was like, did he have an accent? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, does he have a mustache? And she was like, yeah. And I, she's like, you know who it is? I was like, don't ever watch this man's videos ever again. I got, I legitimately got mad at her as my girlfriend at the time. I legitimately got mad. And then she showed me the video that she was talking about, and it was, uh, it was the one with the the, the neo-Nazi guy with the uh, 180. White people are up here, and then there's shoes. So, white man is the best man. Let the pelvis be man's existence. Get drunk and have a blue mohawk. What was Jesus Christ? Savior, no. He was a Jew. And what did Jews do? They lied. I commit adultery about every two minutes, maybe. I watched it through to, to the end. I was like, is that, what this, is that what this man would have talked to me about? Like, I wish I had stayed till the end. And that, like, once that happened, it changed me. All of a sudden, I realized, like, the things I was told, the things that I believed, it's, it sounds all nice, but it, it takes you nowhere. That's, you know, and, and now here, I, I come out here, well, I would be out here every Tuesday or Friday with, or with our church doing evangelism, giving up, giving up these guys, are you a good person, drag. But, yeah, we, we kind of exclusively <laughs> use living water stuff now. So encouraging. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. Yeah, and, you know, I always wanted to apologize. I always thought after you know, truly being born again. I would come back and see you one day and give you a hug and say thank you for what you've done through my life. But it's never, it's never, <laughs> it's never, cry, so. yeah. Oh, great to meet you. We've been to the bookstore a yeah. couple of times. We listen to the podcast now, too. And it's been, I've seen my husband grow so much in the faith and his love for other people and wanting to share the gospel with them. It's just been so night and day. So thank you to Ray and for your ministry. And enjoy the podcast. Yes, very much. I'm the only sane one amongst the four. <laughs> that's funny, yes, we do. Oh, that's great. Thank you, guys. Yeah. This lady's aunt was trying to distract her through the whole interview. You wait till you hear what she said about me at the end. Could you say that again? What did she say? Uh, she said, you're... You think this life after death? I do. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily say that it's life. But I do think that we have experience after death. I think we have a consciousness. What is this? It's not life. That I can't answer, but I think we're just kind of uh, consciousness in our human bodies. And then when we die, we shed the body and we transfer into the great consciousness. How frightening. Sort of float around as a spook for eternity? Well, a little bit. Yeah. Are you afraid of death? I'm going to say no now, but when I'm close to it, I'm sure I'll be. Well, that's honest, are you? Yeah. Are you an educated person? Are you well-read? I would say I'm well-read, yes. What's the world's biggest-selling book of all time? I don't know that. The Bible. Oh, the Bible is the the biggest-selling book of all time. That's worrisome. Are you familiar with that famous story where the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good master, what shall I do 
to inherit eternal life? What do you think you have to do to get everlasting life? I don't think you have to do anything besides just exist and do your best. I think even the evil people get everlasting life. I think hell is only on earth. Marissa, the Bible says after you die, you've got to stand before God. Are you a good person? Yeah. I, I think, yes. How many lies have you told in your life? Ooh, too many to count. You've stolen something? Yes. So you're a lying thief? Yes. <laughs> you still think you're a good person? I do. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Absolutely. <laughs> you love your mom? I love my mom. Would you ever use her name as a cuss word? No, I would never use my mom's name in vain. Yeah, because you respect her. Yeah, she's number one. But you don't respect the God that gave your mother. You've taken his holy name and used it as a cuss word. I don't know if I necessarily... That's not my God. I know, that's normal. (laughs) Right. The first Ten Commandments is don't have your own God. Don't make up a false God. And we tend to do that, a God we feel comfortable with. Once again, I appreciate your honesty, Melissa. Of course. Jesus said if you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked with lust? Absolutely. So here's the summation of your court case. On Judgment Day, you've told me you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, yep. and an adulterer at heart. Yep. Here's another question for you. Have you ever heard the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death? No. It's very famous. I'm sure I've heard it one of these days. My aunt over there, she was my confirmation lady. Are you Roman Catholic? I was Catholic. Okay. So anymore. Let me go back to that question. Okay. Yeah, the wages of sin is death. It's saying God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge who looks at a criminal who thinks lightly of murder. Just laughs it off. The judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. Yeah. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This, yeah. is, what, this is what you've earned. Oh, my God. And Marissa, sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row, and your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. Mm. Now, if you're guilty on judgment day... Mm-hmm. Will you go to heaven or hell? I don't think either exists. Well, the Bible says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. Said the Bible knows everything. Let me just finish because it's so important. <laughs> I know you think this is a big joke, but... Marissa, I do not think that this is a big joke. I'm deadly serious. I really care about you and where you spend eternity. Oh, you care about me? Yeah, I certainly do. I wouldn't talk to you like this if I didn't. Right. So, what did God do for guilty sinners like you and I so we wouldn't have to go to hell? <laughs> this interview is taking a turn. Okay, yes. I am, um, I don't think we worship the same God. You've heard of Jesus dying on the cross. Yes. Almost everybody has. Yes. But they haven't heard this. And Marissa, if you can just stay with me for 30 seconds. Don't let anything distract you. I can do 30 more seconds. That's probably please, Okay, please, yeah. please do that. And don't be distracted. Okay. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's why he said it is finished. He was on the cross. He was paying the fine for the law we'd broken. Concentrate. If you're in in court and someone pays your fine, a judge will let you go. Uh So you're out of here even though you're guilty. Someone paid your fine and it's legal for him to let you go. Well, God can legally take the death sentence off you because of what Jesus did on the cross. He can legally let you live forever because Jesus suffered and died, rose again on the third day, and if you'll simply repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, God promises he'll give you everlasting life as a free gift. Right. Please think about what we talked about. Will you do that? I'll I'll think about it. You will? Yeah. That so encourages me. Could you say that again? What did she say? Uh, She said you're a Catholic and a Jehovah's Witness and a lunatic. (laughs) Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters podcast. The Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith, and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com.
like they said, check out livingwaters.com. It has gospel tracks, has lots of different things, teachings and other things uh, about God. And also, um, they have a, that's where I got the, this recording. It's from Living Waters. Actually, it's on their YouTube page. And um, they also have one called Just Witnessing with Ray Comfort. So if you want to see that, see Just Witnessing, Ray Comfort. And that has more uh, witnessing counters like we had right here. And what I'm going to do for you next is I'm going to play. This is from Wretched's YouTube page, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, Wretched. Uh, it's called Getting Christians. I mean, it's called Christians Are Getting Destroyed by This New Fallacy. So listen up here on Truthy Toll Radio. Men and women are created equally. You bet they are. Therefore, women should be pastors. But what about First Timothy 2? So you don't think men and women are equal? It's the Mott and Bailey fallacy. In the old days, there would be a Mott. I like to think of it as a strong tower. You could even call it a castle if you like. It is a safe place. But the Bailey is where we do commerce, where life takes place. It's where the folks reside, and these days people are using the old let's run back to the tower after we've spread bad information. This tactic is used so often. Let's see if we can identify some of these switcheroos. Here we go. Science and medicine do much good. Amen. Therefore, everyone should get vaccinated. Hold on a second. Well, don't you believe in science and medicine? (laughs) This gets done constantly. The mot is science has been helpful. Don't you therefore think that everybody should simply obey science and do what they're told? Well, wait a second. I agree that science is good, but that isn't the necessary application of that mod. And yet, this rhetorical linguistics trick is designed to get you to look like a bad guy. Oh, you're a science denier. Um, no. Here's another one for you. Grandmothers are precious, therefore everyone should wear a mask. Wait, I'm not sure masks are actually effective. Do you want my grandmother to die? Of course we value elders. That isn't debatable. It's the application and a reasonable conversation about whose job is it to keep whom safe. Furthermore, we can take a look at, indeed, scientific evidence to determine how good masks actually work. We can have that conversation, but that conversation does not want to be had by Mr. Mott and Bailey. Here's an example. There are many ways for people to be healthy besides taking prescription drugs. Yeah, that's true. Therefore, homeopathic medicine can cure cancer. Wait, uh, where's your proof on that? Well, don't you think there were other ways for people to stay healthy whilst homeopathic medicine might not be debated with this sort of trick? There are issues du jour, which are also the issues of the day, where the Mott and Bailey is used constantly. Uh, Here we go. Capitalism has some unfair outcomes. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Therefore, capitalism must be totally destroyed and replaced with socialism. Well, wait a second, though. Socialism has never worked anywhere, ever. Do you want people to be taken advantage of? Agree? Disagree? 
Therefore, you look like you are a terrible person. Is everything a Mott and Bailey? No, but we need to identify when this is not necessarily that and be able to say, sorry, I disagree with you on this. And when they then run back to the Mott to accuse you of being terrible, you can say, time out. We need to work through this logical fallacy like this one. Transgender people have been discriminated against for years. I think everybody can agree with that. Transgender people should be able to compete in whatever gender category they choose. Well, wait a second. Wouldn't that be unfair and potentially dangerous? Do you want people to be discriminated against? Of course we don't want people to be harmed or hurt. We agree on that lot. But the Bailey application that men who are born male should be competing in, I don't know, let's say a women's swimming meet, that isn't the same thing as wanting people to be treated in a kindly manner. But doesn't matter. If you disagree with the application, therefore, you are homophobic, racist, misogynist. Here's another one. Black Lives Matter. Amen. Therefore, we should defund the police. Wait, wait a second. Crime will spike. So you must not think that black lives matter. Here's another one. Black lives matter. Yep. Therefore, we should have national reparations. Well, wait a second. You want me to pay for the sins of my great-great-grandparents? So you must not think that black lives matter. This is a prevalent logical fallacy that is used with virtually everything that is controversial these days. And sad to say, it does work sadly we should not ruin the planet yeah right therefore we need global warming summits and controls but uh, that hasn't been proven yet i just want to save the planet don't you it is not merely the world that uses this trick the martin bailey has been imported into the church and there are people typically liberal who will use the martin bailey fallacy to change what has been understood Pretty clearly for 2,000 years, this is example number one, men and women are created equally. You bet they are. Therefore, women should be pastors. But what about 1 Timothy 2? So you don't think men and women are equal? See what they did there? If you do not endorse female pastors, then you're just a terrible sexist, horrible person for wanting to keep women down and not allowing them to exercise their gifts. Now, we can have a debate about what First Timothy 2 says, but to be a victim of the Mott and Bailey fallacy, that just ain't fair. Somebody will make the claim that God, he's imminent, he's near, he's our father. And we would all say, yes, that is true. The doctrine of imminence, God is close, he is near, he is loving. We all agree on that truth. But then, typically a liberal, will take the idea and then say out in the marketplace or in the congregation in this instance, therefore, we can worship God any way that we want. Hold on. Wait a second. When you then tag that person, they run back to the mountain and say, well, don't you think that God is our father who is near to us? Yeah, I agree with that. But your application is a stinkeroo. Here's another church, Mott and Bailey. Some people would say justification. What in the wonderful doctrine. Yeah, 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 yeah. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Therefore, it 
doesn't matter if we sin. Hold the phone, Henrietta. Do you see what they did there? They took the doctrine of justification. This glorious doctrine that says we are totally forgiven of sins past, present, future. We agree on that, but somebody then takes that agreed upon mot. They run out to the Bailey to say, let's just not make such a big deal out of sin. After all, Jesus died for our sins, didn't he? (laughs) And that's precisely why we hate sin, not to mention when we read the Bible, God hates sin. And if God hates it, then with my new heart, with my new desires, I hate it too. And I can't use the doctrine of justification to give license to licentiousness. Let's See, if there's another Mott Bailey, somebody says the doctrine of justification, it's amazing. And if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Yeah, we already agreed. Therefore, Christians should never sin. Wait a second. This is not that. But as soon as you say, hold on, my sinless perfectionist friend, um, I don't think you've got that right biblically. Well, don't you believe that we're new creations in Christ? Yes, I do. But this is not that. Don't let people use this Martin Bailey fallacy to undermine orthodox theology. Might I encourage you, just be listening for this. You can even hear it in sermons. You'll hear it in Sunday school classes. Identify the Mott, identify the Bailey, and then bring in the judge to discern who's right on which issue here, and that judge is the Bible. That was Todd Friel, that's T-O-D-D-F-R-I-E-L. Todd Friel of Wretched, and Wretched is spelled W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D. And you can see him on Wretched YouTube, and also he's got um, a longer show on Wretched.org. It's, uh, and also a radio um, program, it's called Podcast Nowadays, like mine. Um, but it is on wretched.org, so check that out, wretched.org. And I'm your host, Melissa Cantrella. Thanks for listening. And next, what I got for you, this is another Melissa. Her name is Melissa Doherty, and that's spelled D-O-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y. And this is her response to the He Gets Us campaign, and it's called He Gets Us, But Do We Get Him? Here on Trippy Tall Radio. This is one of those times where I see someone mass advertising Jesus, making him their mascot for whatever cultural social trend is happening at the moment. And the He Gets Us campaign is no different. This was an ad ran during the Super Bowl that is supposedly supposed to give the masses a more inclusive look at Jesus. Look, can I see some good stuff from this campaign and on their website? Sure, but you know what? Let me just read this to you, and then I'm going to give my thoughts. Unfiltered. Jesus didn't feel welcomed by religious people either. Jesus was a Jew. He attended the local synagogues. He frequented the temple in Jerusalem. But he was often not welcomed. Why? In Jesus' case, he openly questioned the clergy and their religious practices. They bristled with anger when he challenged their doctrines, beliefs, and long-held traditions. 
Okay, on, on the surface, to a degree, this is true. They are referring to the Pharisees' denial of Jesus. However, what it sounds like they are saying here is that if you're holding the biblical truth, because these are the doctrines, beliefs, and long-held traditions that have been taught not by just the apostles and the teachings in the Old Testament, but Jesus himself. And if you hold to these, then you are seen as someone who bristles with anger when you are questioned about these things. So here I am, a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian who believes what the Bible says and what Jesus taught, as it is expressed in this historical spiritual document called the Bible, and I believe what it says. And if somebody challenges these long-held beliefs and I disagree with them, does that then mean that I'm a religious person that doesn't welcome others? The thing is, is that Jesus was religious. He was a practicing Jew, but he wasn't just a human. He claimed to be God in the flesh the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who took away the sins of the world. Now, this is just one part of this website. This is just one section I'm going to go over. But I have to say, I think this is a little manipulative, and I hate to say it, it's brilliant. Because it makes me doing this commentary sound like a Pharisee. It makes me sound like the closed-minded Christian holding to dead traditions. It poisons the well so that whenever anybody says anything against what looks like virtuous language, what looks like something that seems loving and inclusive, then you are made to look like the bad guy. As you'll see, I'll continue to read this, but I can't help but think that as I'm reading this type of vocabulary, it's like they want to make anybody that seems to hold to historic Christian beliefs as the bad guys. And if we say anything against what it looks like, like a virtuous campaign, then we're just closed-minded fundamentalist bigots. It's brilliant. Let's keep going. I'm going to read this next little section. We may disagree with something being preached from the pulpit or question a religion's moral stance on an issue. Even more alienating is when we ask sincere questions and we're met with animosity by fellow church members. Now, if I'm honest, I actually agree with them here to an extent. You guys know that I'm pretty outspoken about Christians really needing to know what we believe and why we believe it. So, we can answer questions and not make people feel like they're some sort of pariah for asking questions where they then have to turn into a progressive Christian or a social justice warrior or click on a He Gets Us campaign that they saw at the Super Bowl in order to be heard. Now, there is a whole other part of this website that talks about how radically inclusive Jesus was and how he invited everyone to the table. Yes, Jesus invited everyone, you. He invited you, whoever you are. To come sit with him at the table. Murderer, adulterer, thief, liar, sinner, you are invited. The problem is that not everyone wants to sit at the table. They completely miss this. It's like the he gets us Jesus doesn't require you to change at all, but instead just says, you be you. Would you pick up your cross to follow him? Would you leave your life of sin behind and give it all up to follow him, your Lord and God? the one and only one who can truly fulfill you, that is not religious or uninclusive to say so. This is exactly what Jesus taught. What I see here is creating a Jesus that says, yes, you can have two masters. You can have Jesus as the one who accepts you and will not try to change you. Yes, you can come sit at the table. Just don't change anything about yourself. This is not a Jesus that can save you. But you know what? Let's read the next part of this next section. He created division. He stirred up controversy. Many of his followers walked away because his teachings of unconditional love 
were as radical then as they are today. His denouncement of hate, bigotry, and pride didn't sit well with the powerful, the elitist, or the sanctimonious. They did everything they could to make him uncomfortable in their religious services because he made them uncomfortable. But that didn't stop Jesus from attending or questioning. There's so much to say here. Um, (laughs) This is very anachronistic, in my opinion, okay? First of all, it's obvious that Jesus wasn't okay with hate, bigotry, or these things. Nobody should be okay with this. But his message was one of repentance. He wasn't speaking truth to power. He was always calling everybody everywhere to repent of their sin and follow him. This was more than just attending and questioning. This was about the gospel message itself. Jesus wasn't a 21st century good guy, like a nice dude who went around setting people straight about their racism or closed-mindedness. Obviously, he taught about love and forgiveness, but this isn't all he taught. He didn't have to question people. He was the one who had the answers. His questions for others were to think about their positions. If we're to read this about hate, bigotry, and pride, which should never be okay and should always be condemned, but this is framed in a way to make it seem like you and me are these closed-minded religious freaks unable to allow for what we would consider a theologically incoherent context for Jesus. Now, this is interesting They give scriptural references for this section. John 8, why would they do this? John is my favorite gospel, and John 8 in particular is one that I'm just shooketh that they would even quote as a reference. People of the world, let's read some of this chapter, shall we? And then my talking head will give more commentary on why everything I just read to you from the He Gets Us campaign, at least in this section, is garbage. Now, John 8, I guarantee a lot of you actually know about this section if you're not too familiar with the Bible. It begins with Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Jesus is in the temple courts, and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees come and they bring a woman who was caught in adultery, put her before Jesus, and they say to Jesus, hey, the law of Moses says that she's to be stoned for what she did. What do you say about this? But then Jesus responds and says, hey, any one of you who are without sin be the first to cast the stone. They all walk away because guess what? They're all sinners. Then he goes up to her and he asks her, who's here to condemn you? And she says, no one. And he says, neither do I. Now leave your life of sin. That was just a paraphrase, but I'm going to talk about more parts in this chapter that they are using to reference what they just said. And you know what I bet you? I bet you most people aren't going to go read that passage. He's saying, I'm the light of the world. Come and follow me and you won't walk in darkness. Because the assumption is, is that we're all in darkness. Everybody loves John 3.16. But if you keep reading, he says that people don't want to come into the light. They love the darkness. They don't want their deeds to be exposed. He's saying, I'm the light, but you won't come to me because you love your sin. You love your darkness. So here Jesus is talking to the Jewish people about who he is. In verse 21, he says, I'm going away and you will look for me. And you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And the Jews asked him, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he said, no, you are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say in judgment. 
but he who sent me, the Father, is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. It goes on to say that a lot didn't understand him, but some did, and they ended up following him. They ended up believing him. Now, this particular section of John 8, I'm going to read this to you because this is one of my favorite sections of this whole chapter. This is starting in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus explains he is the truth, by the way. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? This is interesting because they don't realize that they are shackled to their sin. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in my father's presence. And you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they said. Verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. But Jesus said to them, if God were your father... You would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you don't belong to God. This is an extraordinary claim. The implication is, is that if you're not a child of God, you're a child of the devil. That means we're all children of the devil until we become children of God. And how do you do that? It's following Jesus. It's giving him our sin. It's looking to him as the Lord, not us. Now, this is a long chapter, and it continues where Jesus is talking to the Jews, and they're accusing him of being demon-possessed. And he's like, no, I'm not demon-possessed. And then he really upsets them by claiming to be the great I am. Verse 58, a famous verse. Truly, I tell you. Before Abraham was, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus hid. He ran away. He was claiming to be God. He wasn't speaking truth to power. He wasn't calling them bigots or closed-minded or religious folk who just couldn't open their mind because they're racist. This is not what this passage is saying. Are all those things wrong? Yes. But does this passage of Scripture talk about that? No. Not in that manner. If I weren't a Christian and I read this along with this certain section on this website, I would be very confused. Look, here's the thing, okay? Jesus loves everyone. He loves you. But this does not mean that everyone is going to love Jesus as he is. Like I said before, yes, Jesus invited everyone to the table. But the problem is not everyone wants to sit with him. They don't like that Jesus. They want to sit with a different Jesus. 
Jesus is not saying to come sit at the table and say who you are because there's no judgment here. No, he confronted people with hard truths. He cared about you changing. He cared more about your soul than just your outward actions. Would we come sit at the table with Jesus if we knew he would look deep into our soul and know our darkest sins and he would call us to repent of them? Would you accept that, Jesus? This isn't a Jesus that's like God. This is a Jesus that's like you. Since time immemorial, people have been wanting God to be just like them. This doesn't make the Bible or spirituality about God. This campaign makes it all about you. The only reason why anyone would show Jesus in this light is to make him more relatable and more like them. And what this website does is that it will take things like Jesus was a refugee, oh, he was a social justice warrior, he spoke truth to power, he was inclusive, all these hot-button topics of the day, and then they shove Jesus into it to make him more culturally relevant. They exaggerate those things in Scripture to make him more relatable to you. Who cares about getting to know Jesus of Scripture? Ugh, who needs that? That's too inconvenient. Is what Jesus actually taught so inconvenient? that you create an entire campaign in social justice lingo with loaded language and trendy terminology that amplifies the humanity of Jesus and devoid of the gospel message, not to mention it demonizes Christians, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, as calling them religious and uninclusive because they don't agree with this methodology. Ali Ben Stuckey, she did a video on this same topic last year, and she said something that I remember, and I want to share it with you. She was talking about the real Jesus, okay? And the, the real Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. This is the Jesus that the world needs, but this is the Jesus that the world hates. There's responsibility on the church because the church hasn't always represented Jesus well, but at the end of the day, the issue is that the world hates this Jesus because they always have. The world wants to mold Jesus and make him into a refugee, a social justice warrior, or whoever and whatever you're going through in 2024. Forget thousands of years of prophecy and the fact that God became his own creation and recorded it in scripture and history. No, no, this is about you. People take away everything that makes them uncomfortable about Jesus and his message. And in this way, it makes him like them. And something I find very ironic about the culture's social justice caricature of Jesus is when Jesus became the Messiah, everyone thought that he was going to save them from the oppression of the Roman rule. They thought the Messiah would bring a, a military leader, bringing them justice. And even though Jesus explained to them many times that the Messiah was there to save the whole world from their sin, not their government, and it seems no different today. And what this website does is that it takes all these cultural social issues and throws them on Jesus. And I've got to be honest, I'm struggling to even really understand what the point of this campaign really is. Like, What's their agenda here? Because it seems like they're trying to remove everything that stumbles us about Jesus. This is exactly how I used to share the gospel when I was in New Age thought. I wanted to create a Jesus that people would like, that they would be attracted to. I would take away everything that was offensive 
about what he taught and highlight only the things that seemed loving and good and attractive. But this is the exact opposite reason why he came. Yes, he cared about the poor and about those who hurt. He cares about your hurt, what you are going through. They want Jesus to be all-inclusive, but here's the thing. That included the Pharisees. It included Judas. And that included everybody in John chapter 6, verse 66, who decided to walk away from Jesus when he started speaking tough things that they didn't like. Those weren't Pharisees. Those were the common people. Jesus purposely made crowd-thinning statements. They wanted bread from him for their physical bodies. But when he starts speaking about himself as being the bread of life, and that's what they really crave, they walked away. This campaign is offering physical bread at the cost of spiritual bread. I had someone compare this campaign to the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s, which was, in, in my opinion, one of the only bona fide revivals that I've seen in recent years. But this is nothing like that. I know they made a movie out of this, and there is some truth in this regard to how snobbish some people can get. I get that. But there's no comparison here because nobody's removing the message of the gospel in the Jesus movement. People were flocking to the message of Jesus as it was proclaimed, and nobody had to make Jesus out to be a modern-day hippie in order to do it. Paul didn't walk into Athens and say, hey, guys, I'm going to become a pagan to win the pagans. I'll use your terms, make my God like your gods, worship how you worship, and basically compromise everything I've been taught and told in order to show you how my God is loving and inclusive. Jesus did not do this either. He called the religious leaders hypocrites, yes, but not because of what they believed, but because of how they acted. They were prideful. They would say one thing and do the other, and they were not humble about it. You know what I don't see from this campaign, though? I don't see them quoting parables like the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee, who's confident in his own righteousness, goes up to the temple and thanks God that he's not like these other people, Ugh, these other sinners these robbers, these evildoers, adulterers, or even like this gross tax collector over here. Ugh. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Look how good I am. You know what the tax collector does? This is so phenomenal. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus called him justified for it. He says those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He's not even over here dogging on the Pharisee because he's religious. He's dogging on the Pharisee because he's not humbling himself before God. Can you beat your chest before God and cry out to him and say that you are a sinner? Can you compare yourself to a holy and perfect God to the point where you can't even look up to heaven and compare yourself to him? Do we really need to pull God down to our level and make him just like us? Because we have exalted ourselves so highly on the pedestal of self that we've completely lost our senses to the point of spending millions of dollars on an advertisement at the Super Bowl. See, this is what people do. In order to make Jesus more inclusive and palatable, they always mess with the message of the cross because it's offensive, because it causes you to look at yourself and understand that you are not perfect in the eyes of God, but he makes you perfect through the cross. What the cross does is that it causes us to look within and realize that we are not good. This is not a popular message. So what do you do? 
you make it popular. You make it popular by removing the stumbling block. You try to make the Christian message seem more tolerant and kind. There's tremendous emotional and cultural incentive to compromise the Christian message. Do not do this. Peter, in 1 Peter, explains that Jesus' message is a stumbling block. If you remove the stumbling block, the thing that people have to grapple with when it comes to following Jesus, then you remove the gospel altogether. You have rejected the cornerstone. What made Jesus controversial was because he came and said to humans everywhere that they were not enough and that he's not like us in the sense that he's a sinner like us, that he came to save us from something that we could never save ourselves from. Yes, there are rigid, religious, legalistic people out there. Trust me, I know. I get it. But to say that that's the only audience Jesus ever had and called out is just irresponsible and wrong. He called you out, too. He calls us all out. This campaign commits the syncretism mistake. They're blending the culturally relevant political Jesus together with the Jesus of Scripture, and they're making a whole different Jesus. He was absolutely inclusive in the sense that nobody is excluded at all from coming to him for salvation. Everyone's welcome. But do you want to come to him? Is he someone that you even want at all if it's going to be an inconvenience for you? Look, at best, people come to this site, which gives them an impression of this social justice activist Jesus that's like them, then gets them in touch with Christians who share the gospel. At worst, it's basically a progressive campaign. But even progressives are upset that they're using their terms and imagery. This entire campaign messaging makes me wonder who's behind this. Like, what are they thinking? If they're using this terminology or lingo to bait and switch people into the gospel, I don't get that at all. It's like, okay, if the culture at large thought that Jesus was a three-headed alien, would you then start referring to him in sci-fi terminology? You're going to lure people in with a false Jesus in hopes that they'll accept the true Jesus? That's like trying to get people to love a diamond by giving them a cubic zirconia. Like, oh, look, it looks pretty. It's shiny. It's so shiny and beautiful. And wow, it's not going to cost me anything either. Yes, I'll take that, please. Ah, just kidding. Oh, no, no, no. We were just luring you in, you know, with a false sense of reality and basically deceiving you, then deciding to tell you the truth. We think this is what Jesus did. You're welcome. Okay. So there. There's my talking head. I didn't talk about this last year, but this year I'm speaking up. Be sure to let me know your thoughts in the comments below. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Think I missed something? It's always kind of a risk to do a video like this, but I think this needed to be said. Always start with God's Word. This is Ken Ham encouraging you to trust God's Word from the very first verse. This week we've seen that all the so-called missing links are either mistakes, humans, or apes. This reminds us that we should never start with man's ideas about the past. People weren't there, they don't know everything, and they make mistakes, as I often teach families. When we see a claim in the news about evolution, we should ask, were you there? And of course the answer is no. No scientist was there to observe the past, but God was and he has given us an eyewitness account of history in his word. Since God was actually there, knows everything, and doesn't make a mistake, we should always start with his word. Find out more about the truth of God's word, creation, evolution, and more at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com.
This is Melissa Cantrella, and now reading from God's Holy Word, the Bible, and this is called Daily Bible Reading from WWTT, and this is Genesis 20 to 23 on Truth Be Told Radio. Genesis chapter 20. And Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. Then he said, Lord, will you kill a nation even though righteous? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself also said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Indeed, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also held you back from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So now, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you seen that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I said, Surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it happened when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is the loving kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever it is good in your sight. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother one thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all you are cleared. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, so that they bore children. For Yahweh had utterly shut all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Genesis chapter 21. Now Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. 
And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing in jest. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maidservant and her son. The son of this maidservant shall not be an heir with my son, with Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. So God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and your maidservant. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her voice. For through Isaac your seed shall be named. And of the son of the maidservant, I will make a nation also, because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the child and sent her away. So she went and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was finished, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bowshot away, for she said, Do not let me see when the child dies. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. Then God heard the voice of the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Arise, lift up the boy, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and was an archer. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now it happened at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. So now swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according to the loving kindness that I have shown you, you shall show me and the land in which you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham reproved Abimelech about the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them cut a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because there the two of them swore an oath. So they cut a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Genesis chapter 22. Now it happened after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, 
and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there, and we will worship and we will return to you. Then Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and put it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and put him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the boy and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw and behold, there was a ram after it had been caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide, as it is said this day, in the mount of Yahweh it will be provided. Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not spared your son, your only one. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have listened to my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and walked together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now it happened after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, and Buz his brother, and Kemuel the father of Aram, and Kesed and Hazo and Bildash, and Jidlaf and Bethuel. And Bethuel was the father of Rebekah. These eight... Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And his concubine, whose name was Reuma, also bore Teba and Gaham and Tehash and Maacah. Genesis chapter 23. And Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a sojourner and a foreign resident among you. 
Give me a possession for a burial site among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial sites. None of us will refuse you his burial sites for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your desire for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephraim the son of Zohar for me. And he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a possession for a burial site. Now Ephraim was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please hear me, I will give the silver for the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephraim answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, hear me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between me and you? So bury your dead. So Abraham heard Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephraim's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field in the cave which was in it, And all the trees which were in the field that were within the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham as purchased in the sight of the sons of Heth before all who came in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field at Machpelah facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a possession, for a burial site. By the sons of Heth. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, See smilesandstuff.com. That's S M I L E S A N D S T 
T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Like I said, check us out, truthbetoldradio.com. And that has also um, a way if you would like to donate. Um, it's not that it's a incredibly large cost, but it's a lot for me. Uh, it usually costs $39 each month. And often my mother is my only sponsor. But if you would like to help out, go ahead and look there on truthbetoldradio.com. And thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join me next time. We have new shows every Sunday, and um, our set time is 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Pacific time, but sometimes we go a little bit late because I do things like today. My dad turned 73, so happy birthday to him. And thanks for listening to the show, and bye for now. Thanks for listening, and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.